Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Hi, if I haven't met you, my name is Brendan, and I have the privilege of leading our young adults ministry. But this morning, I also get the very special privilege of preaching Romans 13. Woo, yeah. And so if you're not familiar with Romans 13, it's a very simple passage. It deals with very non-confrontational things, such as submitting to governing authorities, paying taxes, the tension between religious freedom and government. And so it's just super easy stuff that we're going to walk through on this Mother's Day. <laughs> now I recognize over the past few years, uh, there's, we've really experienced a lot of tension and conflict. Just by saying the words COVID, critical race theory, uh, freedom convoy, wokeness, vaccines, if you're like me, you can just feel an emotional response to those words. And I also recognize it's easy to talk about those things in the culture out there, but those things often impact our lives at home, in our relationships with family members, navigating these dynamics in the way that we approach work and relating in the rest of society. And so it's something that's deeply personal to us. And I've also realized that as we try to navigate these difficult conversations, it seems like it's becoming harder and harder to do so. It seems no longer that we're trying to work towards some nice solution, but to actually dehumanize the other and to try and undermine their authority. And so there's this longing for a new way to operate, a new way, in a sense, to play this game. And it reminds me of a game that I played over an entire semester in our Ethics 101 class. And so we had this game, it's called Diplomacy. I don't know if you played this game before. It's similar to Risk. It's all about world domination, but you have to work with other people. And the way that it worked in our class was that you would submit one move a week, and so it lasts the whole semester. And there was these 13 different uh, territories on the map that had resource spaces. And so once one team got all the resource spaces, they would win the game, and they would get an extra 10% in the class. So there was a lot on, li on the line. And I am a little bit competitive when it comes to board games, strategy. And so my wife, JC, she was dating me at the time. I wouldn't let her be on my own team. I've made her go on a different team so that I had some sort of political alliance. And I would look to find these rules and to bend them in a way to serve my own interest to win. One of the rules was you could not move to a space that was not named. So we just started naming spaces so that we could move there. And we started to play this game in a way that we could bend the rules for our own benefit. But as the game went on, we realized nobody is going to win this game like this. We don't have enough time. We don't have enough trust with people. And in fact, this game is on the way for there to be no winner and that 10% to be gone forever. And so we started to play the game differently. We thought, you know, is there a way that we could make one team win and then they would divide up the percentage among the rest of us? And what happens is there was a shift in the way that we approached the game. It was no longer about serving our own interest, 
but it was actually about looking to the needs of others to try and play this game in a different way to see others benefit. And I think when it comes to these different conversations, we need a new way of operating, a new way of approaching these conversations. And Paul recognized that. Paul was speaking to a church in Rome that in many ways was facing similar situations. There was uh, racial tensions between Jews and Gentiles, political tensions, religious tensions around the law. And so Paul was speaking to them, trying to give them a new way to operate. And we talked about, you know, previously going through all of the previous chapters in Romans about this freedom that we have in Christ. But when it comes to freedom for Christians, that freedom is a two-part equation. There's a freedom from, which is a freedom from sin, brokenness, the corrupted way of living, but also a freedom towards a goal. It's a freedom towards living in a way that brings honor to God and love towards other people. And as we dive through this uh, very fun text, we'll see that this is a theme that is, stands out as something that we need to really wrestle with and to allow ourselves to come under. It's this idea that freedom from Christ enables us to sacrificially love others like Christ. And this uh, counter-cultural love uh, takes on different forms as we're going to walk through this text we're to see that this love is something that comes from Jesus, but it's a love that moves uh, towards and for our city, and it's a love that becomes personal as it moves towards our neighbor. And so I'm just going to read the first few verses, and then we're going to dive into the text together. So if you have a Bible, I really encourage you to open it up, whether it be paper or app form, and we're going to jump in Romans 13, verses 1. Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be, subjected, be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience." So let me just pray, and then we'll dive in. Jesus, we come, uh, yeah, with all the different weights that we experience in the world. The weights within our own heart, the weights that we see outside, and we want to come before you and to just come under you and to allow your word to speak to us. Uh, Jesus, I just pray for, for wisdom, humility, and boldness uh, in my ability to communicate your word. Would you encourage us this morning? In your name, amen. So we're going to beginning with looking at this idea of love from Jesus. And so this first part is going to be a bit technical. We're going to walk through the text. But I think it's necessary that we actually take time to walk through it. Because in the past and even in the present, this very verse has been used by different uh, people to 
as a rubber stamp of their governing authorities to approve oppression or to use, be used in a way to be twisted so that we don't have to obey anything the government says. And so there's actually a lot of implications in the way that we read this verse and the way that it's read hopefully correctly uh, with humility and in line with what Paul was really intending. And so I'm just going to start asking some questions. Hopefully these are some of the same questions you were asking when we were reading this, and we're just going to walk through it together. So my first question is, what does this teach us about God and government? Well, we see in the first verse, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And this brings me uh, to Colossians 1, 16 to 18, which says, For by him, talking about Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so we see that Jesus holds all things together, that in creation, God's intention was to bring order out of chaos, and he was going to work through and with human agents and human authorities to help accomplish that and to bring justice in the world. What we also see from this is that governments have delegated authority, that the authority comes from Jesus and it's delegated to governing authorities within the land. And so what this means is that the authorities of government is not equal to the authority of Jesus. And so this was very revolutionary in its time, where Caesar claims that he was divine, and that his word was on that same level. And Paul says, says no, the authority that you think you have was delegated to you by the God of the Jews who you think you oppress. But we also have to recognize that this is revolutionary in our time. When we look at our world, often political ideologies have risen to the standard of the divine. And whatever our political party or ideology says, that's what we equate as the ultimate rule or good. And here, there's a different way to operate. We don't let our politics dictate what it means to be a Christian, but it's through studying and examining and working out, uh, living the life that Jesus calls us to live that informs the way that we approach political and social issues. But this raises the next question. If all power and authority comes from God and displayed in Jesus, how does Jesus view authority? What is his view of authority? And so this takes us to Matthew 20, 25 to 28. And so Jesus says to his disciples, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, talking about power, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be among, so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." And so authority, according to Jesus, is a position that's been gifted for the purpose of serving others. That's how Jesus approaches authority. And part of that service is actually to uphold justice and to hold to what is good and right and to punish what is bad and evil. And so we see that in verse 4, that there is this authority to uphold justice, 
uh, and to, to, as almost as an instrument of God's wrath. And so what we see is that God's desire is that sin does not go unpunished. In the verses before, he talks about the response of a Christian when facing opposition and persecution is this sacrificial love, uh, nonviolent response. But at the same time, God doesn't desire that that evil goes unpunished. And so he has delegated authorities so that there'd be law and order in the world. And what we see is that God works through governing authorities, even if they don't recognize it, and even if they may be somewhat corrupted. We see this throughout the Old Testament, where God actually works through Persia and King Cyrus, who ruled over Israel, and he calls him a servant of the Lord. And he uses Cyrus to bring Israel back to their land, to rebuild the temple, and to work towards a new way of operating in worship of God. And so what this means is that God is not always morally affirming all forms of government, but God is sovereign over them and can still use them towards his ultimate good. And this leads us to what is our response as a Christian towards governing authorities? Verse 1 says, let every person be subject to governing authorities. That's not a fun verse. (laughs) But what we see is there's this idea of being subject to governing authorities. It's a recognition of our role in the world, recognition of the delegated authority that God has given to those governing authorities. And we do this, verse 5 talks about, to avoid God's wrath, to avoid punishment of what was wrong, but also to satisfy our conscience, to uphold what is good. But we also recognize that submitting to governing authorities does not always equal, or does not equal, blind obedience. And this leads to probably the most obvious question that we come to this text. What do I do Or how do I submit to governing authorities when I believe they are going against what is right or what God has taught? And this was a question that the Jews in this time were asking as well. And we see different responses to this question in their time, which actually we see these responses become mirrored in our time. One of the responses was of the Jewish sect, which was the Essenes. And so they viewed governing authorities as evil, a lost cause, and we need to avoid that. And so they would go out to the desert, start their own community, and try to avoid any governing authorities. We see another Jewish approach, which was that of the Sadducees. They took a very opposite approach. They thought, well, let's just try and gain as much political power as we can, even if it meant compromising. And third, we see the example of the Zealots which they just lived as outright defiance to hold up the sword and to completely oppose any rule of the Roman authorities. And into this context, Jesus presents a different way. We see our desire maybe to retreat, to run away, to live in our holy huddles. It may be to pursue power at all costs or to, even if it means compromising our belief. Or maybe we desire to live outright defiance, to have the only authority as my own authority as an individual. And Jesus calls for a different way. 
As I mentioned before, in Romans 12, verses 20 to 21, Paul, who quotes Jesus, says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This was the response of Jesus to these authorities in his time. And we see this uh, on display when Jesus tells his disciples to go the extra mile. Now, in this culture, Roman soldiers could force anyone to carry their gear for one mile. And you had to, by law, take up their gear and carry it and follow them for that one mile. But by law, they could not force you to go beyond that. They could not force you to go a second mile. And so what Jesus says is that if a Roman soldier forces you to go one mile, go two. Why? Because this is, in a way, an act of defiance through sacrificial love. That for the first mile you go as a slave because you have to. But the second mile you carry their gear, you do it as a free person out of your own choice to love and serve the person that was oppressing you. And then the law becomes flipped. First, the weight of the law was on you for the first mile. Now the weight of the law has become on the Roman soldier for the second mile. That Jesus flips this dynamic. And so what this means is that the way of Jesus is not blind obedience, passive ignorance, or civil disobedience. It is an active, sacrificial love through humility and service. It is a deep love for others, unwilling to compromise on the lordship of Jesus. So what does this mean for vaccine mandates, COVID restrictions, the trucker convoys? It means that you can send all your comments, complaints, and opinions on these matters to Pastor Rob Chartrand. <laughs> and after May 31st, he'll be more than happy to respond to every single one of your emails. <laughs> uh, all kidding aside, I recognize that even in this room, and online, we have people that differ on these issues. And my desire this morning is not to give you a specific answer to each of these political issues. One, we don't have the time necessary to walk them all through, but also that's not the purpose of this specific sermon, to kind of give us a bigger overarching uh, view, but also to really evaluate our motives. How are we approaching these issues? In the next chapter, Romans 14, Paul walks through some of these issues in his time, and he encourages the people to be convinced in your mind, take time, learn the issues, understand what's going on behind there, understand the other person's opinion as well. And he says, whatever you do, make sure you're doing it in honor of Jesus. The desire is not for a political party to overtake the authority that Jesus has over our lives but it's actually to, to take time and to have these important conversations, but to do it in a way that's full of humility and boldness characterized by this sacrificial love. And so I put a couple questions away uh, that we can kind of re respond on and to help kind of evaluate what is our motives behind approaching these issues. And at first, is my response honoring to Jesus? Am I looking to live in line with what Jesus has taught in Scripture, how he lived? Or am I trying to align myself with some sort of political ideology? 
Second, is my response self-serving or others-focused? Am I living for my own interests or am I trying to seek the, uh, the interests of others? And thirdly, am I motivated out of love or out of fear? Is my response out of the fear of the other or what I might lose? Or is it a motivation out of love for others from what I've received from Jesus? And so this leads us to a love for our city. We've received this love from Jesus, walking through the idea of Jesus and authority, and it propels us towards this love towards our city. And so if you could pick up your Bible, we're going to pick up in uh, verses 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So Paul advocates to love open-handedly, to not be reserved to hold things in, but actually to, to be able to, to love and to give honor to others. That you're actually to be good citizens, to pay taxes, to actually fight for the good of our city and the place in which we live. And when we look at this idea of giving honor and respect in our culture, this is something that people often hold on to that they're not quick to give that honor and respect to other people. In fact, they hold on to it for themselves. And as we will see with my lovely artistic abilities, when it comes to the idea of respect and honor, we often start at the bottom. And we think, you know what, if I can just gain respect and honor and come up like this and you know, through social status, through uh, acquiring a following, through all these different ways of trying to gain respect, get to the top. And at the same time, it means I may have to push other people down, to push them down in order for me to be raised up, to get respect and, and honor. And you know, sometimes I might reach out to other people to do something nice for them, but it's transactional. I'll give you honor and respect if it helps get me more honor and respect. But here's the thing about the gospel that it takes this paradigm and it flips it on its head. Is that Jesus says, you don't start at the bottom. In him, you start at the top. You've received freedom, love, and honor through faith in Jesus. And then we are able to get low and to allow ourselves to be lowered through love in order that others might be raised up. This is the way of Jesus. That Jesus, who is in heaven, full of power and freedom and grace, humbled himself to the point of death on a cross so that others might be raised up with him into this new life and respect. And so we can give honor. We can give respect to those that do it because we've received such incredible freedom and love from Jesus. Martin Luther, uh, the reformer, he says this, which I think summarizes it so well. A Christian man, or we could say a Christian man or woman, is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. Although these statements appear contradictory, yet when they are found to agree together, 
will be highly serviceable to my purpose. They are both statements of Paul himself, who says, Though I be free from all men, yet I have made myself a servant unto all. And I owe no man anything but to love one another. Now love is by its own nature dutiful and obedient to the beloved object. Thus, even Christ, though Lord of all things, was yet made of a woman, made under the law at once, free and a servant, at once in the form of God and the form of a servant. And that we see that this is the countercultural view that uh, Luther comes, comes to from the work of Paul and Jesus. It's that we are free above all, and yet we've, we chose to submit ourselves towards all, not as an act of compromise, but act out of love that we've received from Jesus, to follow the pattern of the cross, death and resurrection, to, be, uh, to lower ourselves so that others might be raised up. And so this means, are you a person that's honoring? Jesus says that they, the world will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love. Do people know that we are his disciples by the way that we love? Are you designed to bring honor to build others up, or are you looking to tear others down? You know, an example would be if you're in the lunchroom with coworkers and they start to bash your boss and to say all these bad things, are you someone that jumps into that conversation and continues it to gain their momentary approval? Are you someone that looks to change the conversation in a different direction, to bring honor and respect to people? And this doesn't mean that we have to always agree with those people in authority. In fact, some of the times, the most honoring and respectful thing is not to gossip about someone, but actually to have a, a crucial conversation with that person, to address them, to walk through that issue. But it's doing this in a way that's honoring of others, not trying to tear others down. And we saw that this was the life of Jesus' followers. That in this time, Romans actually had a real hard issue on what to do with Christians. And there's this fun conversation between two judges trying to figure out how do we approach these Christians. Because on one hand, they will not worship Caesar. They will not pinch incense to him, worshiping him as divine. But at the same time, they're model citizens. They pay taxes. They do everything that's right. We have nothing else to put against them. And what they actually said is that we're noticing that there's a change happening in our city. People are no longer going to the pagan temples. That food sacrifice to idols is no longer being bought. That there actually began to be a change in their city by the way in which they loved others and were unwilling to compromise on the lordship of Jesus. And so this leads us to a new response, and that is that love towards our neighbor. We have a love for our city, which is kind of a love out there, but this love takes on flesh as it moves towards our neighbor, towards the other person. And so you can pick up in verse uh, 9, where Paul says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. 
And Paul quotes from Jesus, you know, the great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so much of Romans has been dealing with the law, the law of Moses, which is, sets up this, the definition of what it means to be God's covenant people. And here, Paul summarizes the entire law. He says, this is the hook in which you can hang the law. It's this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. And so what does it look like for us to love our neighbor? If we are to love our neighbor like Jesus calls, it's a love that extends beyond our political tribe, belong our family unit, even beyond these, beyond these walls of this building. It's a love that extends towards the other. It's a love that celebrates the kingdom of God at work in people's lives. And as an example, uh, a few years ago, I was in Vancouver, and I was talking to this urban missionary. And so she lived in the commercial drive area. And I don't know if you know that area of Vancouver very well, but it's very progressive area, very anti-institutional. In fact, Starbucks doesn't actually do very well there. People are very against any type of corporation or organization. And these people not only would not attend church, but they actually view the idea of organized religion as not a good thing for society. And here's this urban missionary moving into that neighborhood, trying to bring the love of Jesus. And as she moved in, what she noticed is that there were some really valuable things that were a part of that community. That people actually knew their neighbors. They got to know their neighbors. They cared for their neighbors' needs. And there was a, a strong care for people that were on the outskirts. People like refugees. And so she partnered with her neighborhood so that her neighborhood could sponsor a refugee family from Syria. And CBC actually heard about this, and they came to film this and to tell this story. So they all took turns sponsoring this family, uh, providing uh, food, places to stay, bank, uh, how to set up a bank account, how to live in Canada. And they actually worked together as a neighborhood to sponsor these refugees. And she told me the story of this meal that they had, that the refugees had just, you know, kind of arrived in Canada. CBC was there to document this. And these people wanted to be very honoring to the Syrians and their culture. And so they asked them, okay, what do you do around foods and meals? Like, what's your tradition, your culture? And they said, oh, we're, we're Syrian Christians. So we, we hold hands and we pray for our meal. And so here was this beautiful picture caught on CBC, you know, national TV, of an urban missionary, uh, a bunch of atheists, and Syrian refugees holding hands and praying for a meal that they shared together. And so I asked her, how do you, how do, you do that? <laughs> and she says, this is my strategy. I look for the values of the kingdom in my neighborhood and community, and I celebrate that. And I was just thinking, you know, what would it look like for us to be those types of people? Where we find the values that are at work in our community, that the kingdom values, the things that Jesus values, that our community has, that bridge, and to celebrate that. And I think one way that we actually have, you know, begin to investigate that is, is through the Beverly cleanup, where it wasn't just about us doing our own thing to clean up the neighborhood, but it's actually working with other people, other organizations to partner together to celebrate the kingdom of God at work in the Beverly neighborhood. It's working with others that the kingdom of God 
is above all. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of God is not a political ideology, but it actually is beyond that. And it calls us to love in a way that's very countercultural, to love in a way that comes from the life of Jesus, where we receive this freedom from him, which enables us to love in a different way. As we conclude, I want to go back to the words of Martin Luther again. And he says, we conclude, therefore, that a Christian does not live in himself, but in Christ and in his neighbor, or else is no Christian. In Christ, by faith, in his neighbor, by love. By faith, he's carried up above himself to God, and by love, he sinks back below himself to his neighbor, still always abiding in God and his love. This is the countercultural vision of self-sacrificial love in the form of Jesus. That we can actually lower ourselves to love others, lift them up, because it's Jesus who raises us up through faith. And as I approach this and talk about this vision, I'm very aware this is something we actually can't do on our own. That to be honest, my default motive is not this. My default motive is to surround myself with people that I agree with, that I find likable, easy to talk with. But that's not the vision of Jesus. He actually calls us beyond that. And the only way we can live this way is when we've actually received that love and grace from Jesus. That it changes the way we operate. It changes the way in which we view others and the world. That Jesus has called us to a new vision. And we actually need him to transform our hearts, to renew us, to make us new. And for you, maybe this is for the first time that you actually want to join God's family to experience that incredible freedom that Jesus has for you. That through faith, not our own works, that we are brought up to God into relationship with him, which enables us and empowers us to allow us to lower ourselves to love others in the way that Jesus did. So as we conclude, I want us to just imagine what would it look like for us to be a community like that? What would it look like for us to be a community of selfless giving in a world of selfishness? What would it look like for us to be a community that is honoring in a world that looks to undermine? What would it look like for us to be a community that looks to build bridges instead of building fences? What would it look like for us to be a community that's full of truth, humility, and boldness in a world of relativism? What would it look like for us to be a community that celebrates God's kingdom in a world where people look to build their own kingdoms? And finally, what would it look like for us to be a community that experiences God's presence in a world that is longing for more? What would it look like for us to be this countercultural community? Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you and we recognize that we are in need of your grace and love that it can become so easy to dehumanize the other person, to push them out, and yet we recognize that we were the other. That while we were far off, you died for us, so that we could be brought into your family, that we could be given new life in you. And Jesus, we pray and we thank you for that freedom, and we pray that you would allow that to empower our hearts so that we can live differently in the world. Jesus, we love you. We need your grace, and we want to be a community that points others towards you. 
We love you, Jesus. In your name, amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.